since the summertime, I think it was since July, we began studying the book of First Chronicles. And we've been looking at it, uh, at this book, which was written, remember, about 500 years after the events that the book speaks of. The book, you may recall, was written when the children of Israel were returning from their uh, captivity uh, in Babylon there. And they're making their way back to the land of Israel, and there's sort of a sense of, all right, uh, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Who's going to lead? Um, who are the priests going to be? Where are people going to live? And so on. And so they're, they're writing this book, this book, Ezra, we believe is the writer, is writing this book, sort of putting all the pieces back together here. So some of the events that take place in the book happened some 500 years earlier and were passed down through oral tradition to the Jews as well as some written tradition as well. And they're put together in this book that we have as First Chronicles. Now, the key character of the book of First Chronicles, as I said, is King David. Now, there are 29 chapters in the book. In those 29 chapters, his name is mentioned 26 times. Clearly, every chapter is talking about him in one place or another. When you get to, to chapter, I think it's chapter 11, from chapter 11 to the end of the book, every chapter speaks of him. So he is clearly the key character of this book, but not every event of his life is in the book. There are some aspects of his life, some events of his life that we know from other books in the Bible that are not recorded in this particular book. The purpose of the writer here is to sort of set David up as the glorious king of Israel. So some of his stains or whatever may not be listed there. And that's not because the Bible is hiding those things, but it's a lot like Hebrews chapter 11. You're familiar with Hebrews 11, I'm sure. We call that the hall of faith. Uh, and these great men and women of faith that accomplish these great things of faith, and you read about them and you think, wow, every one of those guys had it exactly like he or she had to have it. They were right on the mark. But then you go back in the Old Testament and you read stories about Abraham, and you think, what are you doing? And you read stories about this fellow and that fellow, and you realize, you know, they're just like me. But God sees them, and he sees the work of faith that was done in their lives. And that's a lot like what heaven's going to be. You and I, we have our failures, don't we? We have our foibles, we messed up, we made our mistakes and all that. And at other times, we've had great moments of faith where we're thinking, they should write a book about me. I'm a pretty good fellow here. You know, well, that's what God sees in many ways. And that's what's going to be celebrated when we get into heaven, the work that God has done in our hearts. And so here in this particular book, uh, we're going to read a story today that actually continues from last week. Now, in our last study, we were looking at Israel coming against this people called the Ammonites. Uh, the Ammonites are located just on the east coast of Israel, basically between Israel and Jordan uh, today is where the Ammonite people lived. And there was a new king in the land of the Ammonites. It was a, it was a boy, or he's a man actually, but the son of the king who had died. His name is Hanan. And Hanan, David wanted to kind of get off on the right foot with him. Sent him a fruit basket I shared with you at the death of his father. I'm not sure if that's biblical, but you get the idea there. And he wanted to kind of start things off right, but Hanan rejected that. He, he kind of felt like, I don't trust you. And so he started a fight with David, and David finished the fight, uh, as we talk about here. Um, that is through his soldiers. Uh, and Joab and all of them, and we read about it in chapter 19, this fight that is going on and the defeat. Well, here as we come to chapter 20, it's actually a continuation of the conflict. The conflict wasn't actually over in chapter 19. Uh, there was sort of two aspects to the fighting. One was out in the fields, sort of, in the area outside of the city, and then there's going to be a part of the fighting that is in the city itself. First thing you would do in those days if you're going to build a city is you were going to find a water source, and then you would build a wall around that water source, a big enough wall so that the people could live in. And so the city itself is pretty secure. Chapter 19 is pretty much the fighting out in the fields. Chapter 20 will have to do with the fighting inside the walls of the city. Okay, sound good? All right, fantastic. Now, as you look at verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army, and he ravaged the country of the Ammonites, and then he came and he besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, Rabbah was the capital city of of the Ammonites. It goes by slightly different names in other cultures, um, but all very, very similar to this word Rabbah. Today, this would be pretty much the city of Amman, Jordan. Obviously, Amman is much bigger today, but you can even see the root of the Ammonites in the word Amman here. Now, the text says that Joab, remember, Joab is the general of Israel. It says that he led the army and he ravaged first the countryside of the Ammonites. That forces, that's chapter 19, 
that forces the, the, the Ammonite people to run into the walls, shut the doors, lock the windows, so to speak, and, and sort of like, all right, how are we going to get out of this mess? Put some archers up on, on the wall or something like that. How are we going to get out of here? And it leads to uh, a siege on the city, or as it says in the passage there, he besieged Rabbah. Now, a siege, you probably know, but in case you don't, I'll tell you, it, it basically involves surrounding the city so that no supplies can get into the city. And then we just wait. So we got it it's surrounded. Eventually, you're going to run out of food. Eventually, you're going to run out of water. Eventually, you run out of uh, anything that you're going to need to survive. And then we'll choke the life out of you, and eventually you guys will surrender and we'll win. Historians and scholars suggest that this siege is not listed in our Bible, but they suggest that it lasted two years. It was a two-year siege. That's a long time. And that meant they had a very good cistern or a very good source of water uh, that was providing for the people. But eventually, they begin, they begin to run out of food, and Joab is going to be victorious. Now, if you look at verse 2, it says, well, the end of verse 1, it says, And Joab struck down Rabbah, and he overthrew it. Now, verse 2, And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very, very great amount. So David took the crown. Now, it says that it was a talent uh, of silver. Uh, that is approximately 75 pounds. Or excuse me, it says it was a talent of gold. 75 pounds uh, that was placed upon his head. Now, you think, what? That's crazy. Come on, how can somebody put a 75 pound? Well, they actually think that it was a throne. Remember, like, in those, I, I don't know, maybe they still do this, ladies. I don't go to beauty salons. But you know how, like, in, in the 70s, they had those, like, spaceship things that came down over the person's head, you know, and you sat in them? Um, some of the young people are like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. But uh, for, do they still do that? They still have the spaceship things? Okay, good. Uh, well, that, they, they're suggesting that that was kind of what the crown was, that it was actually built to the throne, and it's sort of like you, you kind of like popped up in it, you know, kind of thing, and, and that's how you put the crown on. Uh, we don't know exactly. Uh, but either way, David here becomes the king. I wonder if the head of the king was attached to the body, you know, so the, thro- the, the crown was on the, the king's head, I wonder if that head was attached to the body or not. We don't necessarily know. Uh, but David here is victorious. Now, there seems to be a little bit of a, of a contradiction here. It says that David was at Jerusalem, but then it says that David you know, took the head or the crown of the thing here. Uh, so that seems to be a little bit of a uh, contradiction. And part of the reason is because the full story is not given to us in First Chronicles. For clarification, if you look at the parallel passage, this is found in 2 Samuel 12, it says, much of it's the same thing, but uh, enough different that it stands out. It says, now Joab, he fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and he took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David, and he said, I fought against Rabbah, moreover I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together, and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together, and he went to Rabbah, and he fought against it. And he took it. Joab is, that's a pretty remarkable guy, isn't it? So Joab is the general, and he could easily now, you know, all he has to do is blow, sorry if I spit on you, Rich. All he has to do is blow the, you know, the, the wall over, and they're going to win. They're right on the end of winning this thing. Just blow. But he says, you know what, I'm not going to be the guy to do it. So he puts a call into David. So everybody kind of stop the attack. Puts a call into David. Say, get down here so that you can knock the wall down, and you could be the one that delivered the city. And you could be the one that gets the fame and the glory for this. I appreciate that about David's number two man, this guy Joab. So they topple the city. And they put on this really big crown. Now if you look to verse 3, in addition to toppling the king and taking his crown, it says that he put the Ammonites to forced labor, causing them to serve with saws and irons and picks and axes. Now, some of you here may be reading the King James Version. Anybody here reading the King James? A couple of you? Good. Great version. I like it. Uh, in there, it doesn't say that they served with iron picks and axes, but it says that David cut them up with iron picks and axes. And, and the reason, uh, that's pretty different. That he calls them to serve or that he cut them up, you know? The, the reason for the disparity is because it, it's sort of written in the Hebrew in a way that is not quite clear, and so we don't really know. And so the, the writers of, the, the people that put the King James Version, they kind of said, well, we think this is what it means. And 
and those that read some of the more modern versions, or wrote, I should say, like uh, the NIV, or in my case, the ESV, and others, uh, they sort of interpreted that it doesn't mean cut up, but that they served and used it to cut. And so there's just some um, confusion there. It's certainly not going to change your life and, and you know, rock your faith or anything here, but I want to make you aware of it. Uh, and so that is that. Either way, the point's clear. Israel wins, and the Ammonites lose. Now, sad though, when you put all this together, when you remember that David wanted to make peace with Hanan, and he wouldn't. And Hanan and his people, they could have avoided this whole thing, this two-year siege and the hacking to death or whatever it is, the slavery that came as a result of the victory of the Israelites. He could have avoided all of this had he just simply received the fruit basket and trusted David, but he didn't. Well, verse 3, the rest of it says, having been victorious and securing the city, that David returned to Jerusalem. Now, as you continue through verses 4 through 8, we see that the key figures among David's men led the nation to victory a number of different times, all against the Philistines. And if you look, some of the men that are mentioned, look at verse 4. It speaks of a fellow by the name of Sibachai, and he was a Hushathite. Now, a Hushathite was a descendant of a guy named Husha, who was from the clan of the Judahites. All right, so that's a Hushathite. And Sibachai there, uh, he gives them victory, struck down this fellow by the name of Sipai, who was a descendant of the giants. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, you have mention of Ilhanan, the son of Jair, who we read defeated Lami, which is not Lami, but Lami, the brother of Goliath. The brother of Goliath, remember him? Now Lami, or Lami, he was a giant himself. Notice it says the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. You know, so the average guy would have like a stick, but this guy had a log that he was carrying around because he too was a giant. But he's defeated by Elhanan. Verse 6, it speaks of another war. This time the war was at Gath, which are Philistines. And it says, And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, struck him down. Now this is not the Jonathan that was Saul's son, that was David's good buddy growing up here. This is another fellow, the son of Shimei, or Shimea, excuse me. And he's used to uh, deliver the nation of Israel from this no-named giant. And, and I guess if you're the kid in kindergarten that has 24 fingers and toes, you don't really need a name. You know what I mean? People just know it's the kid over there with the 24 toes uh, and fingers. And so he didn't have a name, but he was defeated by Jonathan. And then if you look at verse 8, the chapter concludes with the summary statement. These were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now you read that, and you read it quickly, and you're like, oh good, some more giants have died. But giants were never defeated in the land before, before David came along. People ran from giants. People avoided giants. People had nothing to do with giants. They didn't think about it. And if the giants came in the land, they went to another land. Well, give it to the giants, it's their land. But then there was a day when a little kid, whose name was David, heard one of these giants taunting the children of Israel. And I love David. These are my, some of my favorite verses in the Bible, or verse in the Bible, words in the Bible. In 1 Samuel 7, David's response was, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I just think that is so cool. Who's this guy? He's got a lot of nerve coming against the people of God. And you know the story. Most of us know it pretty well. David picked up a stone. He slung it at the giant's head, and he killed Goliath. Cut his head off, grabbed it by the hair, and brought it to the king. And he was like, here. And remember, David was just a boy, 15, 16 maybe at the most here. But his act of facing this giant and killing it, it set the pattern for his mighty men afterwards. And I think that is very, very key, the pattern that he said. I think there's a lesson for us. Because there are giants in our lives that seem so mighty and they cause everybody else to flee and we feel that they can't be defeated. But David set a pattern that they can be defeated. Those defeated enemies then become an example for the rest of us. And I think this is key here. It's an example that will give us confidence and courage to repeat. So here I am, I'm trying to walk with Christ. I gave my life to Christ in 1988. 
And during that time, there have been people that have come in and out of my lives that I've looked to and I've observed and I've watched their lives and I try to emulate the pattern that they have set for me. And I look at people that have had to deal with certain areas of sin that had a hold of their lives and how they've uh, earned victory, if you will, or, or gotten victory in that area of life. I looked at people in, in ministry who should have never been in ministry, but God did a work in their heart and he did a miracle. And I say, you know what, that, that's my life. I shouldn't be here, folks. If you know who I am and you know the background that I came out of, you know that, and the training that I had and these sorts of things, then you know that guy really shouldn't be our pastor. I mean, what gives him the right? And honestly, the pattern that was set for me by other men in my life is what I'm seeking to emulate and follow. And so people here have come in our lives, moms, dads, mentors. It's important for us to set a pattern for those that are looking to us. And so for those that are in the youth, like running our youth group, you're setting a pattern for those students that are looking at you, whether they're kids in second and third grade or younger, or they're kids up in uh, the high school age that are working with our senior high youth group. They're looking at your life, and you're establishing a pattern for them. Moms and dads, your kids are looking at your life. They're looking at your interpretation of what it means to be a Christian. And they're seeing if that comes with you when you go home. And so how do you live your life at home? What are the things you talk about at home? What are the things you're watching on TV at home? How do you spend your money at home? All these things are looking at that in your life and you're setting a pattern for them. And if your pattern is one that, you know what, most things we're pretty good on. Praise the Lord. But then there are giants that come around and they cause us to flee and run and we just submit to them. You know what's going to happen in your kids' lives? You know what's going to happen in the lives of the kids of our youth group and our children's church and all these sorts of things? You know what's going to happen to those young brothers and sisters that are looking at the leaders of our church, looking at my life, and they're looking at that, they're interpreting what it means to follow Christ. And if they interpret what it means to follow Christ is that most things he's helpful for, but then there are a few giant type things in our lives that he has no power over, that's exactly what their walk with Christ is going to be. But if you've established in your life that, you know what, giants come along, and they freak me out, but I stand strong, and, and I say things like, well, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? What right does he have? And so I pick up a stone that is near me and I sling it. If they see that occurring in your life, they're going to adopt that in their life as well. It's a pattern of faith that will give them strength to face the giants of sexual temptation or the giants of compromise or the giants of peer pressure. They'll observe all of these things. You will set a pattern for victory that was won for you at the cross of Calvary. And it's really likely that they're going to follow in your steps. Now, I want to end, believe it or not, with one last thought. It's just going to take 25 more minutes. Um, but I want to end with one last thought that pertains to the chapter. And it's based on information that's not provided for us in this book, but it's provided for us in the book of 2 Samuel. But before we look there, I want you to look again at verses 4 through 8. Look at verse 4. It begins by saying, And after the, this there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer. Verse 5 begins by saying, And there was again war with the Philistines. Look at verse 6. Begins, it says, And there was again war at Gath. Remember, Gath, they are Philistine people. That's a city. The Philistines were the perennial enemies to the Israelites. And with all these recurring battles uh, that David had to endure against the Philistines, I imagine David might have said from time to time, Will this fighting with the Philistines ever end? As I think about that, and I think about who David is, David is a type of the Christian life. In some ways, you can look at David as a type of Jesus, uh, and you can go that direction if you want to, but you can also look at him as a type of the Christian life. And in this case, as a type of the Christian life, if David is continually fighting the Philistines, then you know that you are going to continually battle against the Philistines. Now, who are the Philistines in this life? And, and have, if you've ever said, will I ever stop struggling? Will I ever stop fighting? Will the battle ever come to an end and it'll just be easy for me to live as a Christian and do the things that I believe God wants me to do? Has anybody ever said that? Thought that maybe? You didn't say it here. But you think, you know what? Look, I've been a Christian for 10 years. This sort of struggle stuff should be done with. I should just be able to move forward and have no problem with these particular areas. Well, ask an older brother or sister, and they'll like Kevin, and they'll tell you, they'll say, look, man, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I'm still struggling with things. And every day is a battle. But every day I can have victory if I choose to. But the battle doesn't go away, not this side of heaven. 
We've quoted it before, but Peter says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone, someone, anyone, to devour. He will devour, or he'll make his best effort to devour someone. That's a picture, isn't it? Of a lion outside your door, a hungry lion prowling outside looking to devour someone or something. Wouldn't that cause you to think a little bit differently how you exit your house in the morning if you knew there was a lion out there? You know, you'd throw your kid out to the front and you'd run out the back door or something. You would do, you'd come up with the dog maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's better. Uh, but you'd come up with some plan and you'd walk very slowly and very gingerly. You'd look behind every bush. You'd make sure if the lion was somewhere out there, he was far enough away that you could run to your car and you can get there in time and you'd be safe. You'd approach things very, very differently. You'd certainly approach the mundane things of life differently, wouldn't you? Going out to your car and departing. If I knew there was a lion out there, I would tread a little more carefully and I would be aware as possible. If only David had done this. Now, some of you may know the rest of the story that we learn about when we come to 2 Samuel. But this scene, this story that's not really shared for us in 1 Chronicles is given to us in 2 Samuel. And perhaps you might say this is the greatest and most grievous sin, maybe, of anyone in the Bible. And certainly, I would say, in the life of King David. You see, the parallel passage of uh, 2 Samuel 10 gives us more info. This is what it says in 1 Chronicles 20. I'll read it to you again. You saw it. But it said, Joab led out the army. He ravaged the country of the Ammonites. He came and besieged the Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, 1 Chronicles goes on, and it says, and then this happened, and that happened, and so and so, and such and such defeated, and so on and so forth. And, and it just kind of moves in. Now, remember a couple of things before we turn to 2 Samuel. If you want to turn there, you can, 2 Samuel 11. But first off, we learn that this is the time when the kings went out to battle. David is a king. You have to ask yourself, David, why aren't you at battle? Did you have some kind of an injury or something that kept you back there? Like, what's going on, David? Why aren't you there at battle? Well, let's read 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Again, looking at verse 1, it's almost exactly word for word as we read in 1 Chronicles. It said, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2. Well, it happened, this is while David is at Jerusalem, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and he inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness and then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Here's David, this great man of God. And yet he finds himself having an affair with another man's wife. And you look at that and, and I was talking with Robin, my wife, about this and and we were saying, you know, if, if somebody were like making this story up and, and writing a novel and they presented this chapter, I think the publisher would hand it back and say, you know what, this is unbelievable. This, this isn't reality. I mean, you paint this picture of this great hero and all of a sudden he's doing this. It, it wouldn't happen this way. Redo the story. And yet, we believe our, our scriptures and we see that it did. And how does David come from a place where he is referred to as the man of God he has such remarkable integrity, again and again demonstrated, that we look at and we're, we're amazed by, and we think, I don't know if I could be a guy like that. He trusts so incredibly in God and His providence. You can tell he's close with Him. He's referred to in other places as the sweet psalmist of Israel. If we had to find a person that really loved God you know, more than anybody else out there, we, we'd probably pick David. And yet here he is at this particular place. Sad, isn't it? You know, over the last few months, as I've uh, assumed the responsibility of senior pastor here, uh, one of the things that I had to do was sort of go back 
through, all, just try to get an understanding of all the finances of the church and all these sorts of things. Uh, and one of the things that I've come across is um, records uh, of people that have come here, basically directories, you know, from 2005 and 2006 and 2007. And it was, it was, it was hard in many ways to go through that. And I'll tell you why it was hard. Because page after page, as I would see names, I would see couples that are no longer married. I would see individuals' names that are no longer walking with Christ. People that were leaders of our congregation, or influential people, certainly. And people would look to them as a model for what it means to walk with Christ. And here we are five, six, seven years later, and they're not in Christ anymore. That's pretty sad. You know, sometimes I think, if I can make it through the first couple of years in my walk with Christ, then I'll be good. I'll be safe. You know, I'll, if I get past that second, third, fourth, fifth year, then I'll be good with Christ for the rest of my life. And the reality is, every day is a struggle. Every day is a battle. And we look at this passage and we think, David, what caused you to wake up one morning praising the Lord the day before and then wake up the next morning and be thinking something like, I think I'll have an affair today. That doesn't make any sense. How do you get from point A to point B? But I would suggest to you that there, there was not some drastic jump from point A to point B, but there was this gradual drifting, gradual drifting, gradual drifting. And I think there are certainly some lessons here in us. Now the passage begins and it says that David is walking on his roof. And you might look at that and you might think, well, that's strange. Like, we don't walk on our roofs here in the United States. Most of us don't. Uh, but your best way to think of it, you know how down the beach, you know, some houses, they put a deck up on the roof, and, and they kind of, they spend, you know, the cooler evening hours up there? Well, that's what they would do in the construction of homes and certainly palaces in Israel, is they would make a flat roof with a sort of a raised wall there, almost like a railing, but a, a raised wall. And in the cool of the evening, you would go up onto the roof. And it would be a place for a nice breeze to kind of blow through and, and just for you to relax. No air conditioning or anything like that in that particular day. So the, to say that David is walking on his roof is not that peculiar necessarily. This is something that may occur. It does interest me, though, that it says he was there late one afternoon. It's hot late in an afternoon, 3 or 4 o'clock. This is an evening. And so it's sort of like most people don't go up there then. Why are you up there, David? There's something to consider and think about here. But David is up on his roof. But I think the more important question is not, David, what are you doing on the roof? But rather, David, what are you doing in Jerusalem? As we said to begin our study here, this was the time when kings go forth to battle. You don't fight in the winter when it's a rainy season and all that sort of stuff and it's cold out there. You sort of let things, the birds come back out again and the buds start on the trees again. And let's go out. Some people like to play baseball. They just like to kill each other in war. You know, so let's go out and fight war, uh, war again. The, the weather is so wonderful. Uh, but David's not there. That, I think, is, if you will, problem number one. David is not where he's supposed to be. There is always a danger when we find ourselves someplace that we shouldn't be. You want to keep yourself from making uh, all sorts of slip-ups and mistakes and sin? Then make every effort to keep yourself from those places where you shouldn't be. You got a problem with drinking? It's not a good decision for you to go hang out in a bar somewhere with your pals. I won't drink. And I'll just go hang out with my pals or something like that. Well, if you got a problem with that, don't be there. Because I won't be surprised to hear that something happened and you found yourself drunk or whatever. Well, where were you when this happened? Oh, I was at the nursing home visiting people. Is that where you were? No. You know, you were at the bar. So uh, you have a problem with pornography? Well, you know what? Don't go trolling around on the Internet. And I would strongly suggest anybody here that does have a problem with it, and I'm sure there are many here that do, because we know studies show that 70%, particularly of men in the United States of America, have a problem with pornography. There used to be a time in our culture where you had to go to a store and you have to ask the little kid behind the counter, could I please have one of those magazines that's half covered? And there was sort of an embarrassment to the whole thing. But now there doesn't have to be any embarrassment at all. And you can sneak away into a room and you can take in what whatever your eye can take in. Well, I would suggest if you have a problem with that, 
that you make a determination in your household that computer is sitting right in the middle of the living room or dining room area. And if I feel the urge, then I'm going to have to have all my family watching me what I'm going to do here. And there's no other opportunity for me. But you sneak off into another room there and don't be surprised if you get sucked in again. Where are you and what are you doing there? Some of us have a problem with gossip. Wait, you're equating drunkenness and pornography with gossip? Well, the Apostle Paul equates it with murder. Some of us have a problem with gossip. We just talk too much. We want the juicy details in others and we want to be the one to share that nugget with someone else. You got a problem with that? Perhaps the group of people that you're uh, gathering with and hanging out with, maybe that group is influencing you negatively. Make a good decision. You want to put it to death and you need to step out of that group perhaps for a while to protect yourself from that. There's almost always a danger when we find ourselves someplace we shouldn't be. Instead of being at battle, David is back in Jerusalem. And notice what he's doing in Jerusalem. It says that he just arose from a long, I, feel, I was going to say a long winter's nap or something. Uh, that's a different story. Uh, but he, he just woke up from a nap. Now, uh, when, I, when I married my wife, I didn't take naps. I, I had never taken, maybe when I was a baby. But I never took naps as, you know, high school kid or whatever. And my wife introduced me to the sweet luxury of a nice afternoon lap, nap. And I loved it. It was This is awesome. People do this, you know, on a regular basis, on a Saturday afternoon, taking a nap. Uh, and it was great. And so I enjoy, certainly, a nap. But spiritually, we cannot take a nap. You can't take a day off or a week off or anything like that in your walk. And whether you're 15 or 50, and they estimate that David was 50 years old at the time of this encounter with Bathsheba. And whether you're 15 or 50, the battle rages on. And there's no time for a nap in the midst of that battle. We need to be out in the battlefield. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... I'm good. I'm 50 now, right? 50-year-olds, we don't deal with... I'm not 50, but we don't deal with sexual temptation at 50. Maybe when you're 30. Maybe when you're 20. But certainly not when you're 50. Well, David fell here when he was 50. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's David in Jerusalem. He had taken a late afternoon nap. Apparently, thoughts, desires began to enter in. He decided to make his way up onto his roof, maybe kind of look around at the neighboring backyard, see what's going on there. And he encounters a woman that is bathing in her backyard. Now, you might hear that, and you might think, bathing in her backyard? Kind of a floozy is this, you know, or whatever. Uh, that was the norm, too. It's like walking on the roof. You know, that's what they did in that day. So she, there she is, uh, bathing in her backyard. And David there, as he makes his way out to the outer edge of the wall, he catches a glimpse. Now, you, you might think of that, and, and that in and of itself is not sin. The fact that something entered into his eye is not necessarily sin. But we are at, this is a very key spot here in the story. Because what does David do next? What does he do in response to that initial glimpse or glance that his eye sort of caught? And this is a place of temptation where David is strongly tempted here to take a second look. David isn't tempted here necessarily to have her, but he's tempted just to take that second look. Kind of glance over again. To take, did my eyes really see what I thought they saw? To take it in a little bit deeper here. And I would suggest to you that this is the most important part of the entire encounter that is going on here. Because if David fails here and takes that second look, then it's very, very likely that he will fall in even more significant ways. But if David here walks away now, then it is almost certain that he will have victory over this temptation. The way of escape is right here. You know how it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful, that he will always provide that way of escape for us. He won't let us be tempted beyond our ability and so on. This is the way of escape. This is that sort of taking of that second look. And if David here catches it, looks away, and chooses, I'm not looking back, he'll have victory. It's the way of escape that God has provided for him. You know, as you look at the rest of this story, throughout the entire process, God was gracious to continuing offering David opportunities to get out of this situation. 
And so the first one I said is, David caught a glimpse, but he could look away and not look a second time, but he didn't. David then asks about this woman. Who is this woman? And one of the men there is very gracious, I think, and wise to say, oh, that's Iliam's daughter and Uriah's wife. And throw that key reminder that this is another man's wife. You shouldn't even be here looking at this. But you can't say that to the king necessarily. But he throws in that reminder. It's at that point that David was given a way of escape. And he could have said, he could have said, yeah, I'm out of here. And walked to the other end of the thing, taking a cold shower or something. But he didn't. David then says, you know what? I want her. Bring her here. And he sends messengers. And I'm sure while they went down the street to go get this lady, that David went back into his bedroom and he freshens up and all this sort of stuff. And I have no doubt that in that instance there that God was speaking to his heart. What are you doing? David, what are you about to do? And David had second thoughts and doubts. And at any moment he could have said, you know what? Aid. Bring an aid in and said, you know what? It's over. Tell her not to come. I don't even want her here. But he didn't. God had given him way of escape after way of escape after way of escape, and he didn't take it. And because he didn't take the way of escape provided for him by the Lord, he sinned. James chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Each of us are going to be faced with temptation. Some of us, it it might be the sexual temptation like a situation like this. Some of us, it might be a temptation to steal. For some of us, it might be a temptation to lie or to deceive other people. But we're all going to be faced with these temptations. And at the same time that the temptations come our way, the Lord is going to provide a way of escape for us. And I think in His grace, when we say, I don't want that way of escape, He'll provide another and another and another. But when that desire conceives... It's going to give birth eventually to sin, and that sin will ultimately bring about death. You know, it's sad when, if you ask the average person, have you ever heard of King David? They would probably say, yeah, yeah, I heard of King David. And they said, tell me what you know about King David. Oh, he's the guy that killed the giant, and he slept with that guy's wife. That's what they know about David. When the prophet Nathan came to David a little while later, and he, uh, through some circumstance, was able to, get David to admit that he had sinned. Nathan says this, he said, By this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David was this great man of God who did this horrible thing. Now you may not know the rest of the story, so I'll share it quickly with you. She comes back, Bathsheba comes back to David and says, I'm pregnant. And David's mind starts immediately working. Oh man. Now the penalty for an affair like this is that both people should, the, husband, the man and the woman should be stoned and killed. And David is thinking, this is not good. And so David seeks to come up with a plan. So he calls back the husband of this woman. Where is he? He's all fighting the war. He's a leader in the, in the war. He's one of David's mighty men, one of his 30. And David just slept with his wife. And he calls him back and he says, come back, come back. You know, and just let me know what's going on, how are things. And, and Uriah comes back. And David says to him, you've been a great guy, a wonderful guy, I love you and everything. You know, you should go home, have a hot meal, spend the night, uh, you know, with your wife and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean, you know, ha, 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 you know, this sort of thing. And Uriah says, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I love my wife, certainly. I'll take the meal, you know, but my men are out fighting in a field right now. It would be wrong of me to, to go home and do that. How those words must have cut David's heart. Wrong? Uriah, you don't know anything about wrong. David probably thought. So Uriah doesn't go home, and David's like, how can you go home, man, the next morning? He slept on the porch, it says, with the other guards that guarded the palace. And he said, how can you go home last night? And he told him the story, it would be wrong for me to do that. So now he says, hmm, plan B, I'll get him drunk. I'll get him drunk, we'll drag, we'll, you know, we'll drag him home, we'll throw him in, and whether he sleeps with his wife or not, we'll tell him he did, 
And so when she comes up pregnant down the road here, she'll think, uh, he'll think that it was his kid. And the problem will be solved. It'll all be done, won't it? Well, Uriah doesn't sleep with his wife again. So David comes up with plan C. And plan C is he writes a letter to Joab. And the letter is, when Uriah returns, I want you to put him in the heat of the battle, front and center. And when the battle is at its hottest, pull everybody back but Uriah, so he'll be standing out there by himself. And obviously he'll die. And so David hands this letter to Uriah, seals it, trusts him, because he's a man of integrity, trusts him, he's not going to open it. And Uriah brings his letter and he gives it to Joab, David's number two man. Joab loves David. Everything about David, Joab loves. But now he reads this letter. And in there, he essentially says, I want you to kill this guy, Uriah. And Joab, from this point in the story on, seems to lose all respect for David. That David would do this sort of a thing. And Uriah is then murdered, killed in the battle, but murdered by David. You see how we've gotten from taking a second look, and we've gone all the way to this place where he's killing people now. And so he kills this man here, and everybody is mourning and, and all that is associated with that, especially the man's wife. And David says, you know what? This was one of my mighty men, one of my soldiers. I'll take the woman in and I'll make her my wife. And you know what everybody says? David, you're amazing. What kind of a king is this king that he would care for his people in this way? And David received all the praises and the accolades and he covered up his sin and everything is great. And no one will ever know. But David knew. We learn from the Scripture that for nearly at least a year, the baby will go on to be born, that David wrestled. And he wrestled and he wrestled. Would you please turn with me to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, I don't have this for the screen here. You know, sometimes we think, I'll just hide my sin. You know, I, I wish I never did it, but I'll just hide it. I'll pretend it never happened. The problem will go away. Well, I've done that in my life, friends, and maybe many of you have as well. Rather than dealing with your sin, you just hope sort of the guilty feeling would go away at some point in time. Well, David kept this sin for uh, over a year in his heart. Finally, one day, Nathan the prophet comes to David. I'll tell you the story very quickly. Nathan the prophet comes to David. Now, they were buddies, remember? There were other scenes where Nathan was hanging out at the house of the palace. But he comes to David there and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. And the story is essentially this. It's an allegory designed to tell a greater story. Uh, but it's essentially this. There was a traveler that came to a house. And there was uh, this rich man. And the rich man had about a million sheep out in the field there. And the custom of the day was that if a traveler came to your home, you had to prepare a nice meal for the guy. And maybe find a place for him to stay and all this sort of stuff. Well, this rich guy who had a million sheep out in the field, he didn't want to give up one of his sheep. For, certainly not for this traveler, but he was compelled to do so. And so he made the decision that rather than taking one of his million sheep, that instead he would go to the house of his neighbor. And the house of his neighbor wasn't a rich guy, it was a poor guy. And that guy had only one little sheep, or lamb, I guess the term is. And that was not like a field sheep. Sounds like strange words to say. But that was like his pet. And that family loved that little sheep. And the kids grew up with that little guy and they played with him and they slept in the bed with that little sheep. And the man took that little sheep out of that poor man's home, prepared that, and gave it to this traveler. Nathan then says to David, what do you think should be done with that guy? And David responds and he said, he should be killed. Really, David? Killed? Because the Old Testament says in a case like that, it actually has preparation for that that the payment should be repaid fourfold. It doesn't say anything about murder, David, or killing David, or execution. But David was developing sort of this hardness of heart here. And he said it should be killed. And then Nathan turns to David, and I think looks him right in the eye, and he says, David, you're the man. That's exactly what you have done, David. You have multiple wives, David, which you shouldn't. But you have multiple wives, and yet you went and took Bathsheba as your own. And you have sinned. And David confesses, you can read it in 1 Samuel 12, 13, David confesses his sin and it's as if David just breaks. He had been bottling this up and, and, and getting tighter and tighter and tighter and finally it was just shattered and he just exploded. It all poured out. 
And in Psalm chapter 51, I believe with tears, these were David's words, where he said, notice the, I don't know what that's called, I forget, uh, before verse 1, that little title thing there. That's Bible, actually. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And these are David's words. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. And against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Look to verse 10. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Would you please flip back to Psalm 32. Psalm 51 is David's confession. I bet David hadn't prayed in a year. Because how could he? How could he go back into God's presence and certainly pray a sincere prayer? You know, maybe he prayed the quick prayer before dinner or something. But how could he pray a sincere prayer? And then finally his heart was smashed and he prayed that prayer of Psalm 51. And Psalm 32 is sort of the conclusion. I don't know if it happened later that day or weeks later, but it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's the pain of unconfessed sin. Of hiding that, thinking it's going to weigh, uh, go away, I should say. The torture, the groaning all the day long. My bones literally aching. Your hand heavy upon me. My strength being dried up, it says. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And notice these words. I think they are... This concept is just unbelievable. This concept that the Scripture teaches that a man can be a murderer, he could be a liar, he could be a deceiver, he can be an adulterer, and yet he can acknowledge his sin confess it. That's what acknowledge means. And notice what it says at the end of verse 5. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isn't that amazing? You know, so many of us, we think that the process of coming to God and beginning relationship with Him, it starts with sort of cleaning up our lives. You know, I'm just going to put everything in order and I'm, I'm getting older. You know, when I was 21, 22, 23, you know, yeah, we act that way. But I'm almost 28 now. I'm almost 30. You know, now I have a wife. I have, a ki- I have kids, you know, a husband, something like that. And so I'm going to start cleaning my life up. And we think it's this whole process of sort of getting ourselves good enough so that God will accept us. But the Scripture teaches, and I said that's this concept of this verse. You could find it again and again in the Scripture. Is that worthless, sinful, Men and women come to God and plead for His mercy. And the Scripture teaches that He accepts that person. It says in 1 John that if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just and that He'll forgive us of our sin and that He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's great news. Now, we're not going to get into the rest of the story because 1 Chronicles doesn't talk about it there are still consequences for David's sin. People are still dead. Rumors start going around about David after the fact. His child uh, of this union will not live. It will actually die. So there are consequences of our actions. But despite the consequences, there can still be a reuniting with God. 
there can be a confession of sin and an acceptance on the part of God and a cleansing and a washing of that sin. I want to encourage you today. Maybe in our conversation today, my conversation with you, uh, but maybe during this discussion here, you realize that you know there were sort of slippery slopes that you've been going down. You've been finding yourself in a place or putting yourself in a place you probably shouldn't have been. You've been taking second glances more frequently than you used to in the past. You've been kind of playing around with sin, thinking, I'm going to be okay here. You haven't been fighting the battle that you should be fighting. We see the outcome of this behavior, don't we? A second glance led to murder. I want to encourage you, get off the slippery slope now. Guard your heart. Protect what goes into your eye, but into your ear, so to speak. And guard your heart. Because it is painful. But if you've sinned, if you've fallen, you've been trying to cover it and hiding it and wrestling with it, the church is certainly not a place you want to be, but yet, you know, you've been sneaking in here. Please know, please know that there is forgiveness and there is cleansing. And that you don't have to hide from God. You can turn back to Him. And He'll accept you. And He'll forgive you. And He'll cleanse you. Amen? Amen. Father, we... There's an aspect of us, I think, me at least, where I'm very, very... Uh, I don't know. Um, it just causes me to put my heart on guard. Lord, I, I read of what happened to David, this great man of God, and I'm reminded of people that all of us know. Leaders, maybe, in, in the church. People that have had an influence on our faith. Lord, we sought to model so much of our lives after that have fallen and found themselves maybe in the same place as David, in a, an adulterous affair. Or just in some sort of sin that a follower of Christ should never find himself. And so, Father, as each of us we consider David and how he came to that place, Lord. We want to take Lord, inventory of our lives as well. Lord, have we been getting a little too comfortable with sin? Have we been sort of uh, taking a second glance? Or flirting with it? Or sacrificing our, sort of our morals, if you will, or our convictions? getting closer and closer to the edge. Lord. Father, I pray Lord, that your spirit now would come and minister to all your children here this morning. And Lord, that you would bring a heavy hand of conviction on each one of our hearts. Shining a bright light on those areas in our lives which are only going to lead us to trouble if something drastic is not done now. Father, I pray, Lord, for those that maybe have fallen already, in a way that they think is so significant that they could never share it with another person and they could certainly not go to you to ask for forgiveness. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would come again with a heavy hand of conviction and draw them to the cross, the place where that forgiveness is found place of washing and cleansing and purification. Lord, let David be our pattern. Let us learn from him. Keep us from his mistakes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.